0: Welcome to the final episode of Air Power and International Security Series 1 and we're ending with a really fantastic episode looking at the future of air power, particularly for the RAF. We have on with us today Justin Bronk, who is a Senior Research Fellow at RUSI, who specialises in air power and technology and is currently in the final stages of a PhD looking at the development of aircraft. Justin recently spoke at the Chief of the Air Staff's Global Air and Space Chiefs conference on this very subject. So I'm really delighted he agreed to talk to us about this as well. I should also add a slight disclaimer to this episode though. We spoke at length about the RAF's Tempest project and Justin provided a terrific analysis and critique of the semi-autonomous aircraft that would fly alongside a piloted aircraft in this concept. However the inclusion of these semi-autonomous loyal wingmen as they are referred to or were referred to I should probably say was scrapped about a week after we recorded this episode. So it's perhaps a little dated already, but it nevertheless provides a really useful explanation as to why they are not a sensible idea. So without further ado, let's take a closer look at what the future might bring for the RAF and for air power in general. Hi Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the future of air power. My pleasure. I think the first question that we should probably address is what will be the main function of air power going forward?
1: So I think the the key determinant of that will be whether the current sort of pendulum swing back towards state on state high end war fighting, uh, is sustained as the kind of primary planning you know, in terms of force, force structure planning and acquisitions, but also in terms of uh, operational outputs driver. <laughs> if so, uh, then I think we'll see much more of an emphasis on the traditional control of the air role, um, uh, and that to include SIAD-DIAD, so the suppression and destruction of enemy air defences, so ground-based surface-to-air missiles and things, um, alongside the more traditional air-to-air role. Um, the RAF has, has traditionally been very good at the air-to-air role. Uh, well, I say traditionally since the uh, the, the the typhoon uh, came in, um, Tornado F3 was perhaps. Um, a more specialized interceptor and and not quite as capable in the fighter role. But, you know, since the the introduction of the typhoon, um, the RAF has has generally had a pretty good showing against any conceivable state opponent, including the Russians in the air-to-air domain, but really struggles with the um, air-to-surface in terms of ground-based threats uh, to aircraft. So as the Russians have found in Ukraine, hunting down mobile, medium and short-range to air missile systems is actually really difficult um, because they tend to only eliminate their radars for a very short period of time to conduct an engagement. And if you fire anti-radiation missiles at them, even if you do have specialized anti-radiation missiles, which the UK currently doesn't, um, then if the operator detects the launch and turns off uh, the radar, then the likelihood is that missile will miss. Um, and so, you know, to, to, to do coordinated destruction of enemy air defences alongside suppression, uh, you really need kind of a, a well-oiled machine working together or some pretty specific kit. Um, and as we've seen in Ukraine, uh, if you can't do that job and establish air superiority, then there's actually a significant limit to what you can do with air power. Um, so I think that control of the air function be emphasised rather more than it has been over the past 20 years. Uh, going forward, assuming that the pivot to state on state uh, war fighting threats uh, as the key driver of both planning and ops um, continues.
0: So with control of the air perhaps becoming more important over the next 20 years or so, as you've just mentioned, does this mean that things like ISR and air mobility will become less important over that same time period?
1: It's not to say that air mobility uh, and ISR are lessening in terms of utility in and of themselves air mobility is one of those things where if you have a significant amount of it, you'll almost always find gainful use for it. Um, and so, you know, as we've seen, for example, with the the, the retirement of the C-130J fleet um, coming up for the RAF, a lot of complaints that that is going to reduce, significantly reduce the, the fixed-wing transport capacity of the RAF, which it will. Um, same for Puma um, as the medium helicopter retiring before a replacement is ready. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you look at that overall control of the air requirement in a state-on-state context, given that the RAF doesn't have that piece kind of stitched up uh, as a credible capability, one could argue that the air mobility um, piece is over-provisioned as a a proportion of the force if the force's main role is gaining and exploiting control of the air in a contested state-on-state conflict. But of course, if it's about contingency and um, you know, supporting sustained presence overseas and conducting you know non-combatant evacuations and um, you know bringing disaster relief into places, all sorts of things, you will always find really, really good, useful stuff for your own ability to do. Um, the question is, how much of an opportunity cost within your finite defence budget are you going to take in order to resource that very heavily versus, say, combat air power of various kinds? Um, ISR, I think, is changing in the sense that in permissive airspace, there is an increasing argument for um, putting a lot of the the sort of persistent sensors that you would typically see on a kind of wide-bodied airliner type conversion, so something like a rivet joint or or an AWACS or um, uh, Sentinel or something like that, um, to put those on on, on, on unpiloted systems or remotely piloted systems. Um, because you can get significantly better endurance and, and generally speaking, better flight efficiency out of them as well, although Global Hawk, for example, is still very expensive. Um, But, of course, those systems are very, very vulnerable in contested airspace, um, let alone denied airspace. Um, The same, though, can be said of the the big-wing ISR, right? So if you're looking at things like AWACS, river joint, Sentinel, P8, Um, none of those are really survivable in contested airspace. And so given how critical they are to the kind of joint targeting process as currently exists, uh, that's an issue. So for the U S they're, they're looking at developing a procuring large numbers of things like the F 35, which have a sufficiently capable sensor suite that they are less reliant for situational awareness and targeting, uh, on standoff ISR assets and also developing a range of penetrating ISR assets for that kind of exquisite high-end um, stand in ISR and ISTAR mission. Um, I've had, you know, USAF fighter pilots tell me that, for example, that, that the ISTAR constellation is dead in a warfighting fighting context, um, by which they mean, rivet joint, in their case, joint stars, rivet joint, and uh, E3 will be, soon to be E7, will be so far back from a contested bit of territory, because of the the, the range of uh, ground-based and increasingly air-based for them in the Pacific um, threats to those enablers, um, that their own sensors, that own those big-wing ISR assets will be too far away to do their job particularly effectively. Um, so there's a question about what the ISR kind of role looks like going forward. And again, the key question is probably, do you mean in contested airspace or in permissive or semi-permissive? And if it's contested, then the big wing ISR isn't really going to be close enough, Um, although you'll probably still need um, maritime patrol aircraft and and, and AWACS because you're doing coordination and and, and, um, in the case of MPAs, uh, a a critical role that doesn't require you to go into heavily contested airspace. Um, But the rest of it less so. And in the permissive, you'll probably see increasingly unmanned solutions perhaps taking over there or unpiloted solutions.
0: Yeah, ISR has been incredibly important over the past two decades of counterinsurgency fighting, which obviously rely heavily upon intelligence led operations. But these ISR platforms have been used for some time now in uncontested or, or, or largely uncontested airspace. And so I think you've raised some important questions that are about their value in a high end state on state conflict. But if we move away from the specific roles of air power, how important do you think air power will be in the future, especially in relation to multilateral operations like those conducted by NATO, for
1: instance? So as it currently stands, certainly the UK Joint Force uh, and most European NATO forces are extremely dependent on air power to function in a warfighting context. So they, they are designed in terms of the doctrine in which they're they're supposed to fight the equipment with which they're provisioned where spent where money has been spent and not spent uh, with basically an assumption that air superiority is going to be there and that you will have accurate precision fire support on demand pretty much from the air side of things and that you will certainly be defended uh, against hostile air but of course, that relies on not only being able to overmatch an opponent's air capabilities, but also to very rapidly attrit and destroy their ground-based d- defense systems. Um, again, as both the Russians and the Ukrainians are finding in in Ukraine, there, there's a huge degree of mutual airspace denial. So, actually, one of the features of the war in Ukraine is actually a very limited role for air power, comparatively speaking. Um, that's arguably less important for the Russians and the Ukrainians than it would be for say the UK, because both the Russian Army and the Ukrainian army are essentially artillery armies. Um, you know they rely on large numbers of people, huge amount of artillery and a lot of tanks. And so you know the denial of the ability to use air power in the way that the West would is, would try and do. Um, so a lot of ISR and PGM use from medium and high altitudes, particularly medium altitude, um the fact that they can't do that is not necessarily the the handicap to the way they plan to fight as it is as it would be to us but at the same time it's nonetheless interesting that in the first really major state-on-state war um in europe in you know many 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 decades air power is actually not playing that much of a role um it's notable by its ineffectiveness on both sides rather than its overwhelming capability, which is such a huge contrast, of course, to the way that the West fought in both Iraq wars and to a degree in Afghanistan.
0: Now that you've mentioned the ongoing war in Ukraine, what can we learn perhaps from this conflict about war fighting in the 21st century and how air power might feature in that?
1: Um, I think we can learn that, A, if you choose to build ground forces in particular, to fight in a way that is not heavily dependent on air power, it tends to be an extremely bloody prospect because you are reliant on large-scale mass use of both infantry, armoured vehicles and artillery to basically conduct either large-scale manoeuvres and opposed manoeuvres or grinding, uh, as you see now in Donbass, basically grinding one position at a time into the dirt with artillery. Um, And so... You know it's a, one of the reasons why the west has relied so heavily on air power since the this, the early days of the second world war was a conscious choice to try and build militaries to fight in a less in a way that was less reliant on very large numbers of people and ground based firepower although of course in the second world war we relied very heavily on artillery as well um and and basically had a more tech heavy people light approach to fighting power. Uh, and that was kind of taken to arguably its Zenith um, at the end of the Cold War with the with the very air heavy side of airline battle, um, as was demonstrated in, in Gulf War One and, and then of course in the Balkans and, and uh, elsewhere. But the, the corollary to that is, of course, there are huge benefits to having overwhelming air power in a joint context. It, it enables you to Greatly multiply the uh, effectiveness, lethality, and survivability of of the ground and naval forces you do have against an opponent that doesn't have that sort of air capability. But at the same time, you then do tend to design and and fund your other forces, your your ground and maritime forces, to be significantly smaller because over time you assume that that advantage is always going to be there, and thus. If you then have to fight an opponent who has a really serious air denial capability like the Russians, or indeed, frankly, the Iranians or, or the Algerians, you know, there's a lot of people with, with decent uh, ground-based air defence networks that we would have a really hard time um, working our way into, um, then suddenly your force looks really rather small and really rather outgunned if you can't get that sort of mass tactical air power in there. Um, it's also worth remembering that we have spent an ungodly amount of money pursuing extremely high precision with increasingly small weapons, so that they can be used in built-up areas with very minimal risk to, you know, of collateral damage to nearby civilians or structures. But of course, if you suddenly are then called upon to go and destroy massed Russian armor somewhere um, or infantry in the open, then actually those very very precise very small by design, very small, uh, limited lethality warhead containing weapons are really not what you want. Um, and in fact, even if you could, you know, even though you, they would have, you know, very high probability of kill in each launch, they're also so expensive that you can afford really very few of them. Um, what Ukraine, for example, has been doing is, while we hear a lot about Javelin and N-Law, for example, as as you know, high end uh, anti tank munitions they've been stopping Russian advances or columns with Javelin and en and then actually doing the majority of the killing with artillery, which is, you know, relatively cheap, very indiscriminate, um, as we would see it at least, um, mostly one, 120 uh, millimetre grad, so BM-21 uh, multiple launch rocket artillery and 152 conventional howitzers. So they're mixing the high and the low but in a way that we couldn't do because we don't have the low anymore in, in effect the <laughs> what little we have we're sending to the Ukrainians. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at our GMLRS, for example, uh, in terms of our ground-based long-range precision fires, it's a superb capability, but the, war, the, the, the warhead we use is quite literally called the reduced lethality warhead, um, designed to take out basically individual fighting positions or snipers uh, at very long range with enormous precision. But of course, if you don't want to interdict a Russian column, you're going to kill one vehicle. Um, you're not going to have a, 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 you know, submunition scattering effect that is, would be what you'd be after in that context. So it's not only that air power um, offers such potentially huge force multiplier effects that dependence on it means that if you can't use air power effectively, your joint force is probably crippled against most serious opponents, but also that it, It comes with cost dynamics and uh, a different investment profile required for both the low intensity mission set where in discretionary conflicts, what you really care about is minimizing collateral at any cost, um, because that's probably the biggest strategic threat of failure to your campaign. Versus the high end where actually you probably want more lethal weapons um, and uh, probably with a slightly lower degree of precision and at a a lower price point, you can have more of them.
0: For air power to be effective in the 21st century, then, does it need to be prepared for various scenarios ranging from asymmetric war fighting and counterinsurgency on the one hand to conventional state on state conflict on the other? And is this something that the UK in particular is not yet prepared for, given that military procurement and and training have both prioritised counterinsurgency type operations over the last two decades for obvious reasons? Has this left significant capability gaps going
1: forward? So if you look at the combat air side of the RAF, um, they're in a better position than, for example, the British Army or arguably the Royal Navy without Mm. minus the subsurface element, um, which is still very, very serious, Um, in the sense that if you look at you know, a Typhoon or an F-35B, they are both very clearly designed for operations in highly contested environments. You know, they, they are designed for high-end warfighting that have then been, you know, in the case of the Typhoon, has then been progressively adapted to make it a very good CAS platform as well and more permissive. But in the sense, unlike something like a Foxhound or a Mastiff for the British Army, which is, you know, really not designed for high-intensity combat and indeed is also designed for hot environments, um, you know, it's it's difficult to credibly adapt those to high-end warfighting, whereas, you know, the core platforms for the RAF's combat athletes are fine. You know, if for a high-end warfighting environment, that's exactly what they were designed for. The problem is, A, inadequate scale, particularly in terms of enablers uh, and, and, you know, things like the ability to either disperse so that you're not so vulnerable to being hit on your three main operating bases. Or harden them by having hardened facilities to mean that they have to get direct hits and also putting layered air defences around them. Um, one or other approach is kind of required for credibility. Otherwise, that very capable asset in the air is pretty easy to cripple on the ground. Um, and, you know, it's worth remembering Russian long range precision strike has worked very well in Ukraine. It hasn't won the war. Long range precision strike doesn't win wars, but it, it has worked very well. Um, so, you know, they're unlikely to junk that going forward as a, as a key part of their, their warfighting doctrine. Um, but the biggest issue is, is you know, the, the, the supply chain, both in terms of spares and in terms of munitions, has been adapted during two decades of counterinsurgency and trying to maintain a force that, frankly, is too big for the budget that it's been allocated to do it properly, in effect. So what they've had to do is kind of Trim all the fat way past fat and into bone to, to use that metaphor um, to maintain a, a frontline fleet. But actually, underneath it, the munition stockpiles, the spares that particularly readily available spares that you could quickly use in dispersed locations if you needed to in a war, as the Ukrainians are doing, um, they're just not there because that sort of thing in peacetime is seen as highly inefficient. Um, but efficiency is almost the polar opposite of resilience in a military context. And so where you have things that have been right sized for operations, sustained operations in permissive airspace, in discretionary conflicts where we own the tempo, Um, they're not comparable to warfighting structures. And if you look at the RAF at the end of the Cold War, when we were spending a bit over 4% of our GDP on defence, it was very expensive. But you had hundreds and hundreds of fast jets over a large number of bases, which were hardened, had full MBC capabilities, were regularly practiced. They had local air defense and defense teams. They regularly practiced dispersed operations. They had significant stockpiles of munitions and spares at those bases. They weren't relying on a just-in-time supply chain. And they were regularly exercised in TAC evals and MAX evals in realistic conditions as close as could be done, um, including live weapon drops. So, you know, that was, an, that was a force that was quintessentially ready for warfighting and prepared and credible. That is not the way that the RAF or indeed any other European Air Force runs things anymore. Um, and if we were to move back towards a model that aspired to do a lot of the, those good things, which, frankly, I think we should, um, because deterrence requires actual operational credibility. Ukraine was a failure of deterrence by punishment, i.e. if you do something... That we don't like we will impose cost on you um the russians showed they were perfectly happy to take that cost in terms of the sanctions the isolation the arming ukraine all of that stuff so we probably need to move back towards deterrence by denial which means we have to have credible operationally ready forces to say if you try and do this you will fail as opposed to we will impose costs afterwards but that means operational credibility then that probably means we have to have a smaller force if we're not going to spend more money and if we're going to spend more money then great But if we're not going to spend more money, then it has to be a smaller force, but that's actually better filled out and supported. And if that creates political difficulties, which it would of people saying, well, how come the forces are so small? Then you would have to have that. You should have that honest conversation saying, well, frankly, we couldn't afford to flesh them out properly at the rate they were. So either you need to spend more money or stop doing other things. Um, It's it's an interesting one. So what would a more operationally ready force look like in the 21st century? The, the platforms are fine. There aren't enough of them, um, particularly F-35, um, to do the key c Dad role. And also, not only do they not have enough munitions, but they don't, they don't have the right kind. So if you want to do d uh, so destruction of enemy air defences, i.e. not just suppress and force them to turn off, but actually kill those uh, medium, particularly the mobile SAMs. What you need is not only a platform that will detect and geolocate them almost immediately when they turn on, which an F-35 will do, um, but you need a munition that they don't have to then fly close enough to, to actually drop a free-fall bomb on. A, because the risk may not actually be too high to do that acceptably, because the stealth doesn't make you invisible, it just makes you harder to lock onto and generate a weapons-grade track on. But as, as you get closer to the threat, the easier that becomes for them. Um... But you need, So you need a degree of standoff, ideally. But you also, because you're carrying all your weapons internally as a stealth platform, so if you're in contested airspace, you're, you're carrying your weapons internally. If you only have two 1,000-pound class bombs, those are probably your main mission target um, payload. So the F-35 isn't going to be in there just doing the ad. It's going, or if it is, it's going after things like high-end radars rather than individual mobile SAMs. And so it probably can't spare one of the two weapons that it's carrying in for its main mission. But if you have something that is small enough to carry lots of internally, then you can take out targets of opportunity en route to your target as a a four-ship or a formation. Luckily, we have a weapon like that. It's called Spear 3. So Selective Precision Effects at Range 3. Which we are well into the testing and evaluation phase of. Um, they're actually doing the evaluation and testing, flight testing initially on Typhoon, um, although they're not planning to procure it for Typhoon as of right now. But it's got a decent standoff range of 130 kilometers, at least, uh, from most launch parameters and a multi-mode seeker. So with something like that, if you had it in large numbers even without changing the platform mix in the combat air force, if you had a decent number of those munitions, then even a small number of F-35s can geolocate SAMs when they when they uh, illuminate in contested airspace and then fire ammunition from really considerable distances. So probably if they're detecting a medium range SAM, they're probably almost, almost within range. Um, anyway, they can fire that off. And then even if the, the, the SAM turns off its radar, the, the millimetric seeker will have a decent chance of picking it up as it tries to leave the area um, and killing it. So, you know, in the air domain, we do have, you know, and Meteor, for example, is a superb long range air to air capability, especially on Typhoon that can take it really high and fast. So, again, if you were looking at a scenario where you were trying to do Siad, Died, and your opponent also had an air force like Russia, um, then the Typhoon's operating further back. Could provide really credible long-range standoff fire support to those F-35s going forward using Meteor. Again, though, we probably don't have enough of them. <laughs> and we probably don't train realistically in the real world, partly because it's difficult. There isn't much airspace where you can do that. Um, most of it's in Canada or the US, um, at those ranges. But also, we just don't have enough, we don't have enough live munitions to, to train for that. So there is always that danger that as the Russians have found, a force that's capable on paper doesn't actually have the crew currency and and, and skills to actually make use of a lot of their theoretical capability when they're called on, because the sim can do lots, but it it doesn't necessarily um, provide an adequate stand-in for all of the complexities, risk factors, and and physiological and psychological issues around firing live weapons under extreme combat stress when you're being shot back at. Um, You know, something like a red flag will give you that, but uh, those are few and far between for for most pilots. So what you're saying
0: then is that for the RAF to be a truly combat ready force for the future, it requires a more diverse range of munitions and crucially, larger stockpiles of those munitions dispersed across more air bases with hardened defences to make it much more difficult for an enemy to destroy those weapons with long range munitions. Now, I think you've already hinted at this, but should we also include a greater number of platforms to this requirement? I mean, the government seems to be prioritising technology over sheer numbers. And we see this across the board, really, in terms of available equipment. But to what extent will future operations need larger numbers of aircraft as opposed to fewer, more capable systems?
1: It seems to me to be a no-brainer. I mean, it's expensive, but you need more F 35s. There's just no way around it. Um, uh, you know, at the, the moment the government says they've they we've got 48 that will be delivered by 20, by early 2025, uh, which will be 47 because we we lost one um off the QE. Um you know, there may be an attrition replacement bought at some point with underspend or something for that. Um, but I think the funding has been announced. They've said that they've allocated funding for another 26. Um by 2028, I think it is, Um, 2027, 2028, they'd be getting those aeroplanes, I think the idea is. Um, Although the contracts I don't think have actually been signed. Um, And a lot of countries are ordering F-35 right now, so uh, the line may get a a bit congested. But the basic issue is we only have one asset that can do contested I-Star, so intelligence surveillance, target acquisition, reconnaissance, what's there and um, where is it and how can I queue in weapons on it um, in defended airspace? And that's F-35. We only have one thing that can credibly do ced and that's F-35. We only have one thing that can fly off the carrier, and that's F-35. Um, you know, it, it is double, triple, even quadruple hatted, depending on how you, you you look at its sort of core defense tasks. Um, you know, there was even discussion about potentially using them for ASW or something crazy. Um because the sensor suite is superb, you know, people look at the stealth, but the main, the really crucially game-changing thing for F-35 is actually the situational awareness that you get in the cockpit. Um, And there's also, of course, a a huge desire to off-board a lot of that and provide it to as many other elements of the joint force as you can and use it as a sort of eyes forward in terms of, you know, real-time weapons queuing and, and, you know, uh, third-party targeting and things. But of course, that you know, if if you only have 47, um, maybe going up to 72 or three, um, you know, some will be in depot at any given time for deep maintenance. So 72 or three, you probably have 60 to play with, which is three squadrons, um, not counting an OCU. Um, so an operational conversion unit. Um, and if those are basically for generating two detachments of 12 to go on the carriers, which we're supposed to now apparently be deploying potentially simultaneously, um, yeah, that's the whole force, uh, but it's, it's not that you couldn't then switch them to a land-based, uh, bit of, you know, do, employ them in a land-based role if you suddenly needed them for that, but then the majority of the workup and the crew training cycles will be done in a naval environment, training as part of the, the core weapon system that is the carrier, um, and the carrier air group, which, you know, for Navy, naval air forces is a full-time job to do that properly, um, to, to develop those skills. And so, you know, there wouldn't be much time in in the average pilot's time, which they they still don't get enough live flying anyway to for, for, for a primary role, but to then add in, right, and you're going to be the linchpin for cadd in cooperation with the Typhoon Force, while they also do third-party targeting of air-to-air targets in support of you, um, and you're also going to be liaising with the ground force to, you know, for example, help target in HIMARS or, or GMLRS strikes on, you know, key, key assets. The, that requires training as a joint force, and you're just not going to have the time because you're you're you have too few aircraft, therefore too few crews who have to spend their time looking at a primary role in order to be as you know safe and credible at that war fighting role. Um, you know it, there was a reason the the UK's requirement was set where it was initially, so be one hundred and thirty eight. Um, but uh, you know, realistically, they need probably 96 to to low hundreds um to ensure that they have two primarily land based squadrons to generate task lines for the rest of the joint force while the carrier/carriers are off doing their thing problem is that's really expensive <laughs> um and we've pushed the acquisition time frame so far to the right over and over and over and over again that we because you know governments just don't want to Pony up the cash for it at any given point. Um, and because it was getting cheaper over time and better over time, and you know, but it's now competing for funds with the next generation um program uh, ambitions with Tempest um slash future combat air system. So yeah. Um there isn't enough money to do Tempest properly on its own, let alone procure enough F 35s and do Tempest in the next 10 to 15 years.
0: Now, you've mentioned Tempest there, and we can't really include an episode on the future of air power without talking more about Tempest. For any of our listeners not familiar with what this is, the Tempest project plans to build sixth generation fighter aircraft that combines piloted aircraft with multiple autonomous wingmen, as they refer to. And all of these are controlled by the pilot in the cockpit. So on the face of it, this seems to make the best of both worlds. It makes use of unpiloted systems that are perhaps more expendable than piloted assets, whilst also enjoying the safeguards and judgments provided by the human in the cockpit. What do you make of this concept then? Is this the future of air power? Is this going to revolutionise aerial combat?
1: I don't know because it doesn't exist. Um, And its prospects for existing depend to a considerable degree on how much capability ambition there is in the early design spec setting stage, which is going on at the moment. Because if they want something that is sixth generation in the sense that the Americans would see sixth generation, so something like next generation, air dominance fighter, then NGAD, um, then we simply can't afford it. It's just not viable. But there is no, no universe in which we can afford to compete on, the, on, on those sort of grounds. If it is a replacement for Typhoon, which it is officially, and what you really want it for is quick reaction, alert, uh, intercepting airliners and Russian bombers and whatever, and providing close air support in semi-permissive uh, and you know, doing stuff alongside the F-35s, but not as your core penetrating asset. then you might be able to design something at significantly lower price point, both in terms of design acquisition and also operating costs, that is much less ambitious. And then you have a better chance of funding it, but on the other hand, you're then probably producing a less competitive export product. So, how does that play into your your partner nation ambition? So, for example, if we're working with the Japanese, they have quite a high end spec because their threat is China in fifteen years, um, you know, right on their right on their borders, and and so you know they're probably not want to go, not going to want to go particularly you know um, conservative with the ambition. Um, and, you know, if, they're, if they have a requirement for t- some 200 airplanes and we are able to maybe on a good day, perhaps afford 80 to 100, if we're lucky, then what, at what point does it cease being a British or, or an Anglo-Italian program with Japanese participation and partnership and become a Japanese program with British and Italian industrial p- participants? Do you know what I mean? Like it, In terms of how, where you set those specification levels, um, The lower the ambition, the better the odds of funding it. Uh, And, you know, the Italian funding position is worse than ours. Um, But at the same time, uh, if you keep the ambition too low, then it won't be particularly competitive. And what you'll essentially get is a slightly stealthier, slightly more modular, modern typhoon. Um, You know, maybe that's the requirement. Um, But that's not the way it's discussed. And equally, if you decided to go unpiloted, you could throw a real curveball and say, OK, system of systems, yes, we all know it's going to magically solve the mass cost problem by having attritables and you know loyal wingmen, which we can definitely talk about if you want, because I think it's a complete misnomer. Well, it's not a misnomer, it's just a dead end. What makes you say that it's a dead end? So <laughs> the primary advantages of going unpiloted for your combat aircraft are that you can be significantly more efficient uh, by optimising for broadband stealth that can be better than a piloted system because you don't have to have a cockpit and you have more shapes available to you. But also, you would tend to, if you look at prototypes for UCAVs, things like the BAE Tyrannus, the um, Dassault Saab Neuron, the American X45 series, X47B, um, China's GON-G11, GJ11, um, all of them are kind of batwing thing about the size of a hawk and there's a reason for that which is that that's kind of where the sweet spot in terms of stealthiness and price point for a relatively well very stealthy penetrating thing that can or may or may not carry a couple of thousand to two thousand pound glass weapons um but you can't do that as an approach if something has to tactically cooperate in terms of mixed formations with a piloted fighter because then it has to have fighter performance Fighter endurance, roughly speaking, um, and carry sufficiently potent sensors and weapons to be a meaningful extension of the fighter's combat capability that it can rely on, which means it's going to be so expensive that it's definitely not attritable in the sense that people throw the word around. Like, you are not going to want to lose these things. They are going to cost, you know, in the low tens of millions of dollars, probably. you know, maybe 10 to 20 million dollars. And so this is not a treatable even for the US, let alone us. Um so you want them to come back. Then add in and and but you can't make them as efficient and stealthy and, and enduring and penetrating as you would want to because you're having to have similar to fighter performance. So it's gonna be more expensive and less efficient. Um then you're adding in that you're massively increasing the software complexity because suddenly as a sense and avoid issue, it no longer has to just uh you know but know where things roughly are and stay out of their way. Um, it now has to be safe and assurable as safe in close proximity to a potentially very dynamically man- maneuvering fighter airplane with an unpredictable human being in the cockpit. Um, and it has to be safe and con- you know continue to do everything that you want it to do to sit on the wing or whatever in a heavily communications denied or or jammed environment so it has to be able to do it under very heavy electronic interference so you can't rely on a data link to to give you that for sure because you will have to at least assure that it's safe when you lose the data link because someone jams it. Um, Equally you don't get over the lethal autonomy problem so the big problem for UCABS is not technology it's the legal and ethical kind of jump to say right we are going to openly produce and buy something which you you would certainly want to have real time oversight, but it will have to. But it but it must be capable of doing its job if communications are denied at the crucial moment, which is likely over the target because that's probably the most heavily defended point. So it's going to have to have uh, you know the ability to carry out a pre-programmed mission itself, um, which people are uncomfortable with, you know, lethal autonomy. Right? You don't get away from that with a loyal wingman. It, it, it's it's the reason people focus on loyal wingmen is because at a glance you get around that if people assume okay so there's a pilot in the formation so they'll kind of be doing that bit but in the heat of combat pilots get helmet fire just trying to deal with their own weapons and and maneuvering situation let alone trying to manage a swarm of other things doing the same thing so they're not doing real-time yes no fire or not at least not credibly and even if they are again it has to be capable of doing its job when it's being jammed and so you you at least have to design in the, the the reversionary capability to do it. So you still have to certify a lethal autonomous weapon system. So you get the worst of all the worlds without actually getting most of the benefits of going full UCAV, which if you go full UCAV, you can have something that's extremely stealthy, reasonably if cost effective, but not necessarily because it's not expensive to buy. It's still probably 20 to $30 million to buy although it's significantly less than a pilot or fighter, but then you don't have to fly it most of the time. And about 95% of what fighters spend their time burning holes in the air doing is pilot currency, so training and then keeping pilots' skills up. Well, you don't have to do that with a UCAV. Um, so you don't really have to fly it very often, which means you can design it for a couple of hundred hours, life flight flight fatigue life if you want, instead of six or 8,000. You don't have to test them to nearly the same degree. It can be lighter, more efficient. You don't have to train a pilot pool, so you don't have to have an operational conversion unit, uh, a squadron that's on deployment slash ready to deploy, a squadron that's working up to deploy and one that's in rest having just come back. So you have to fill out at least four squadrons worth of aeroplanes and crews in order to have one ready to go at any given point with any piloted aircraft. Well, with the UCAV, you don't need to do that. If you build 40 of them, you can have 40 in your front line. So it's that thing of it's massively more efficient At least in theory, but not if you want it to be part of mixed human formations, because then you need to go up and train with it in much the same way, you need to fight all the time. Yeah, so yeah, I think loyal wingmen, frankly, they are a a dead end. Um, It doesn't make sense to me. Um, And the the full UCABs make so much sense that, well, I mean, the Americans proved the technology in the mid 2000s. Um, the Chinese have had them in flight testing since at least 2013 um, and claim GJ-11 is operational. Um, you know, the tech isn't the problem, but again, it's for a really high-end mission. So if you were to, say, go with you know, a, a UCAV as the centerpiece for something like Tempest, you could save an enormous amount of money in terms of it would cost massively less to do. It would suddenly become in- in- eminently feasible. But... And you would keep your core designers in work and still keep generating intellectual property and all that. And you'd potentially have a large export market to, you know, have it as part of a a force that has largely other aircraft. Um, But what you wouldn't have is something that can do QRA because a a, a, a UCAV can't look into a cockpit and see whether someone's stomped over the controls or has a gun in their back or, you know, it's just not really a thing they can do. Um, And... You know, also on disputed borders, people tend to shoot UAVs down, whereas they don't tend to shoot down piloted aircraft with one or two exceptions because of the different escalatory implications. Um, so it, it's not going to, it wouldn't replace Typhoon. So what you would probably have to do if you went for a UCAV as, as, as the core vehicle in Tempest is almost flip it around and say, right, so now F-35, we're, we're taking the money that we would otherwise have had to spend on uh, a big full-scale, full scale, full fat fighter program which we still probably wouldn't have been able to afford. And we're instead going to buy a couple of task lines of F-35s for land-based roles, which when Typhoon retires, will take over the quick reaction alert duties. And the UCAV, the Tempest UCAV uh, in this scenario, is actually going to support the F-35s and the Typhoons by being the penetrating edge in the really high-end environment. So it might mostly be doing ISR, um, but it can carry, you, you know, you would want to be able to carry some weapons too. And so... It's appropriate and actually quite easy to program, I mean, relatively speaking, for that really high end, but it's not appropriate for the low end, ironically enough. Um, But, you know, if if you talk about signature targeting for lethal autonomous systems, I mean, you know, civilians don't operate fire control radars. Civilians don't fly supersonic aeroplanes. So if you're talking about a UCAV for high intensity combat, you know, hunting down high value assets or enemy aircraft or, you know, surface to air missile batteries, that's actually pretty easy to do. Yeah, you know, frankly, an anti-radiation missile or advanced TLAN block four or whatever else will already have highly autonomous search and destroy capabilities that are legally the same. Um, but we don't consider those appropriate for use in discretionary conflicts. So it comes down to that, that what mission set do you want your air power for and what are you designing for, the high end or the low?
0: And I guess that's a really good point to end on. You've superbly highlighted the importance of preparing for different scenarios in different ways and that you cannot simply employ a one-size-fits-all approach in how you structure and equip your armed forces. So the importance and effectiveness of air power going forwards depends entirely on how well air forces can adapt to the changing international context and operational requirements that come out of that. That has been immensely useful and insightful. Justin, so thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Hopefully it's given our listeners much food for thought. No worries. Wow, what a way to end the series. Thanks again to Justin for coming on the show. So the future of UK air power very much depends on the overall strategic direction that the MOD and the UK government takes. Now, the Integrated Review quite clearly states that the future operating environment will be defined by a return to state-on-state tensions that may escalate into open conflict between modern militaries equipped with advanced air forces. So if the UK wants to be ready to operate in these types of scenarios, as opposed to the asymmetric warfare that it has been engaged in over the last two decades, then it has to significantly invest in the appropriate equipment and training. In this future operating environment, there are undoubtedly things that will remain constant, like the importance of air superiority and the difficulties of overcoming land-based air defence systems. But as sixth-generation fighter concepts develop, and fans hopeful for a Top Gun 3 won't be happy with this, I'm sure, we're likely to see the inclusion of autonomous or semi-autonomous uncrewed aircraft operating on the front line of aerial combat. And that's it for this series of Air Power and International Security. I hope you've enjoyed the show so far. I know I've enjoyed producing it, so I hope it's been useful for you to listen to and perhaps even enjoyable. We'll be back sometime in the autumn for Series 2, so do keep your eyes peeled for that. But in the meantime, please do give the show a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. And we'd love to hear any feedback that you have,
1: especially what you'd like more of. Anyway, that's it for me. See you soon.